0: And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Monday, February 12th, 2024, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, Congress ponders new discrimination protections for older employees. Plus, The Defense Department is really, really serious about cybersecurity. Those stories much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, the Environmental Protection Agency is pulling out all of the stops for a major hiring spree this year. The agency is looking to recruit 1,000 new employees and 350 interns in 2024. It's all part of an ongoing recruitment campaign called BEPA. For more, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman spoke with EPA's Deputy Administrator for Mission Support,
1: Andrew Schreyer. BEPA kind of started as the brainchild of Administrator Regan. In a meeting uh, a while back, we started discussing how we could provide additional opportunities for future generations. I think, you know, with a huge influx of, uh, of money from the bipartisan infrastructure law and the Inflation Reduction Act, we needed to capitalize on a once in a generation opportunity to recruit a, a new class of EPA employees. So, you know, Administrator Regan started his career as an intern here at EPA. So, you know, this project is a bit of a a culmination of of his work to lift young people up and empower them, and I've always tried to find new ways to eliminate or reduce the barriers to entry for folks. So you know, this campaign is all about that. It's about making it easier to get into the federal government, and EPA specifically, uh, as well as recruit new uh, applicants who are passionate about our mission, but may not know about EPA or think that there's a place for them here. So we're recruiting from all over the country and trying to reach people who have been left out previously.
2: And now, Andrew, you also mentioned that uh, some of the funding for these hires came from the Inflation Reduction Act and the infrastructure law. Can you tell me a little bit more about, you know, what are the types of positions that you guys are hiring for? And will they be working directly on some of the initiatives from those laws?
1: Definitely. You know, EPA announced our BEPA campaign, hiring campaign last year uh, to support the efforts to hire more than 1,800 new employees uh, to implement these laws, the bipartisan infrastructure law and the Inflation Reduction Act. And, you know, today I'm proud to say that we filled more than 1,300 uh, of those bipartisan infrastructure law and Inflation Reduction Act positions. And as successful as we were in hiring a lot of these these colleagues, you know, we still have to recruit 400 more uh, of these uh, of these positions this year, um, and these roles are in addition to the hundreds of others that we're hiring for uh, with our appropriated dollars. So. You know, this is a really exciting opportunity. We're hiring all sorts of different roles in all sorts of different offices all around the country. Uh, interdisciplinary scientists, program analysts, you know, grants project officers, uh, public affairs and community engagement. You know, are some of the the positions that we currently have uh, live that we're hiring for and coordinating with this campaign. Some of those are tied to. Uh, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law and Inflation Reduction Act. Others are not. You know, we have more positions in the coming weeks and months. Um, We're also planning to substantially increase and actually double our internship opportunities this year, this summer, uh, which is really exciting, up to, you know, 350 interns. Uh, And that's just the beginning. You know, we're looking for young, energetic minds to infuse new ideas and perspectives into this work.
2: And tell me a little bit more about the early career or the young talent aspect of all of this. Are you going to, you know, college campuses or other places to connect with early career talent? Or how is that? um, How is that really shaping out?
1: EPA participates. We use a program called Handshake uh, that allows for a lot of our outreach um, with with young folks, um, you know, We are able to tap into their pool of over 12 million uh, students and recent grads uh, from all sorts of varying educational institutions, uh, which include minority serving institutions and professional organizations, uh, persons with disabilities, student veterans. And so, you know, the agency is conducting a nationwide recruitment drive. We're targeting, you know, colleges, universities, professional networks. Uh, Some of the ways that we're doing this are through webinars. Um, We host these webinars throughout the year that are marketed, um, some specifically to uh, minority-serving institutions or MSIs um, that that talk about our job opportunities and application process. Um, We last year hosted our first-ever collaborative webinar uh, with another federal agency, with uh, the U.S. Department of Interior, Uh, And that resulted in, you know, 4,800 attendees, I think, um, and and more than doubled attendance at our agency's national MSI recruitment webinars. Um, We've significantly significantly increased participation and and our sponsorship of of some on-campus and virtual job fairs and, and conferences with some professional organizations as well. Uh, NSBE, the, the National Society of Black Engineers, uh, LULAC, the League of United Latin American Citizens are, are some, you know, uh, I, I attended the, the HACU conference last year, the Hispanic Association of Colleges and Universities, but, you know, we're really emphasizing the recruitment of graduates from diverse backgrounds from, from uh, all over the place to, to build a workforce that's reflective of America's diverse population
2: as you're reaching out and kind of forming these new avenues to reach candidates and to reach uh, new EPA employees, um, what is the the feedback or the response that you've gotten? Are Are you seeing more diverse candidates and are you getting more positive feedback from people interested to, to join EPA?
1: Definitely, you know, we're getting a ton of excitement. I think that's uh, the, the biggest feedback we're getting. Um, People want to work here, it seems. And, you know, it, it's a great place to work. We were named a top place to work in the federal government uh, and one of the best employers for, for new grads uh, last year. So, you know, we're capitalizing on that. I believe that uh, this is driven by our mission to protect human health and the environment um, and because our reputation as an agency that takes care of our own people, you know, our. Workforce is our strongest asset, and uh, this administration has really emphasized that. And we've tried to put a lot of, of focus uh, into that. Listen to what our employees are saying um, and act on that. We use the the federal employee viewpoint survey. Uh, you know, we take it to heart, and and we we really you know focus on. On what, how we can be better, always, always improving ourselves. Um, the 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 hiring webinar that we hosted this week, uh, that took place on Wednesday, February seventh, you know, and and was facilitated by Deputy Administrator Janet McCabe. We had the the press uh, event that the administrator hosted on on Monday with uh, press from. Colleges and universities. And so, you know, this is a, a push that's coming from the highest levels of the agency. And we're, we're getting a ton of, of, of excitement. Uh, I think we had over 6000 uh, folks registered for the hiring webinar on, on Wednesday, which is incredible. The response has been excellent.
0: Andrew Schreyer, EPA's Deputy Assistant Administrator for Mission Support, speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Check out Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, the Defense Department is really, really serious about cybersecurity, especially zero trust. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. Zero-trust cybersecurity is on everybody's minds these days. It's a top priority for so many agencies. That's responsible for an information system. For an update on what's going on at the Defense Department... I spoke with the director of the Zero Trust Portfolio Management Office in the DOD's office of the chief information officer, Randy Resnick.
3: So mechanically, this is good timing for this interview because we are two years at the end of January as a formed portfolio office, a Zero Trust Portfolio Office. Prior to the formation of the Zero Trust Portfolio Office in the DOD CIO, there was no integrated synchronized place in the Department of Defense that actually made sure that the topic of Zero Trust was being worked or synchronized uh, across the services. So what senior leadership in the DOD uh, three years ago was concerned about is that everybody would go their own way. And they would start building and installing potential Zero Trust solutions, and then you would have interoperability problems. And so they predicted that that issue immediately and started working towards a synchronization office, which ultimately turned out to be a Zero Trust portfolio office. It was placed inside the DOD CIO, and it reports directly to the DOD CISO, who currently is uh, Mr. Dave McEwen. I report directly to him, and he reports directly to Honorable Sherman, the CIO.
0: And I imagine that there is some cost consideration here, too. If you don't have to buy tens of thousands of different tools, it may not show up in any one place, but if every component is chasing its own zero-trust toolset. I, I know they say zero trust is not a product, but it's also not free. Right. That but Two
3: years ago, it's, it, it's even worse than that. Two years ago, there was no definition of what zero trust meant for the Department of Defense, let alone the rest of the world. There were numerous confusing uh, vendors that were saying they had zero trust solutions, and then they were trying to um, sell these solutions to uh, folks in the Department of Defense, and people were extremely confused because they didn't know what they were buying and what outcome really was being achieved by buying a one off. So when we came on board and was formed as a portfolio office that was one of the main things the first things that we we worked on is let's define what zero trust needs to be and do. What outcome do we want to achieve uh etc. So you'll see in the first year that we were formed we produced a lot of foundational documentation. And everything that we're doing right now in the second year and forward is building on that foundation and actually executing on it now.
0: And of course, the Defense Department likes to talk in terms of milestones. And I think the end goal, I think, is something like 26 or 27 for full zero trust. What are your milestones for 24? What do you hope to accomplish in this 11 months left of this year?
3: Sure. So when we started out uh, two years ago, we tried to determine How long would it take an enterprise the size of the Department of Defense, which is very large, to move to a zero trust cybersecurity uh, configuration? It's never been done before at this scale. And for many reasons, I'll summarize it. uh, We settled on five fiscal years. So that wound up for us to be the end of fiscal 27. So we set the deadline or a goal the strategy that we had to achieve target level zero trust by the end of 27 so with the definition that we created for zero trust which was 91 activities for target and 152 activities total for advanced zero trust it would take five we set five years to achieve target zt target zt for us was defined as the ability to stop an adversary lateral movement and exploitation of data. So that was a key outcome that we sought to achieve. In our definition of the 91 activities, we believe gets you there. So in terms of what we are doing in 24, in 23, what we did is we worked to achieve and get a lot of resources, funding, priority within department. Uh, A lot of outreach, and most importantly, the Department of Defense's implementation plans, which came to us at the end of October 2023, just a few months ago. Those implementation plans described at a granular great detail exactly how each component was going to achieve target level zero trust before or on the end of twenty seven. We have that right now, and we evaluated all of it. I'm extremely pleased about what we received. In the end, I can't say uh, better things about it. We are really in a a good shape in terms of the plan. So what are we going to do in the remainder of fiscal 24 or calendar 24? It's all about execution. In order to do execution, we have to experiment on configurations that could achieve target level zero trust. It's easier said than done. What it requires is a, a number of vendors coming together, teaming, and integrating their products together to achieve the, the 91 or the close to 91 ZT activities. Uh, not any single vendor is going to be able to achieve it on their own. That's why I'm saying that. So we need to pilot or test these configurations to actually see Uh, if it hits target level zero trust. So that's our plan as a portfolio office is to demonstrate multiple, multiple pilots across each one of our courses of action. So we could present to the components, DOD at large, many, many options that they could think about procuring or choosing in any configuration. So it reduces their risk of guessing whether or not something achieves target or not. And that, that accelerates Zero Trust implementation and gets us to end to 27 faster. That's what we're doing this year is trying to orchestrate as many as maybe 12 to 15 pilots for the remainder of the year.
0: We're speaking with Randy Resnick, director of the Zero Trust Portfolio Management Office in the DOD's office of the chief information officer. And how do you prioritize where you begin with those 12 pilots? Is there a risk management type of flavor that comes into this such that This is what we need to do most critically. This is the most important network that we have to protect.
3: Right. So we're not looking necessarily at the networks. We're looking more about the technologies. And something like that could only work if you already have like the solutions in front of you and then you could prioritize. The reality is that there's not too many vendor configurations that have come our way in the numbers that would allow us to do it. So if we want to do twelve or fifteen pilots, maybe there's We're aware of 20 configurations of partnerships amongst vendors that we're aware of. So instead, what we're saying is that course of action one is installing zero trust equipment on the existing infrastructure that's already laid down in the DoD. So we call that course of action one. Course of action two is a complete greenfield solution where you're going with a commercial vendor. A cloud vendor a csp cloud service provider to implement zt for you in the cloud and you would move your users your applications your data your workloads into that new cloud and you would inherit zero trust there's more to it but basically that's it well how does that tie into
0: the big you know multiple award contract that the dod just awarded you know i guess it was
3: last year now right jwcc right right so the four Cloud computing vendors uh, that won that award, those are the four vendors that we are engaging with to see whether or not they could hit target level or higher within a, a JWCC cloud. We're not tied to the JWCC directly, but if you have a deadline of fiscal 27 to achieve zero trust, it's obvious that anything that's going on in the JWCC, when we start approaching 27, it's going to have to be Zero Trust compliant. And so those four vendors are aware of that today. And so that's why we're working with them and they're working with us to start putting together the ideas and the functionality and the testing to actually assert or to assess whether or not they could achieve target or even advanced. And so that's that's what we mean by COA 2. COA 3 is an on-prem cloud. Uh, there's a number of examples of that, like uh, DISA has... Their private clouds. Stratus is a, is a perfect example of a private cloud. You could have a, an on prem private cloud anywhere in the DoD. There are benefits and use cases for on prem clouds. There could be some data and mission that simply can't go on a commercial cloud, regardless of whether or not it's JWCC or not. So, in our strategy, we've asked the components to choose any combination of the three. So we have received in the implementation plans essentially a hybrid solution amongst COAs 1, 2, and 3 that the services and the components are choosing to achieve target ZT across their entire domain. We're very pleased by that. So getting back to the question, we want to do at least three pilots for COA 1, three pilots for COA 2, and three pilots for COA 3. So that we could present a smorgasbord that's even, that the services and components could choose from without leaving anyone out or prioritizing one over the other. And this will continue in fiscal 25 and beyond. So this list will grow over time. You know, in fiscal 25, we'll do another 12 to 15. So then you have 30 answers. Industry is starting to pick up on this pace They're starting to get it. And we're seeing very positive partnerships being formed now between multiple vendors to try to map out to the 91 activities.
0: Randy Resnick, director of the Zero Trust Portfolio Management Office in the Defense Department's Office of the CIO. There's much more to the interview. Find it in its entirety at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the world is a piñata, and Congress keeps swinging and missing. But first, Congress also ponders new discrimination protections for older employees. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. A bill in the House would boost protections against discrimination of older workers— protections that were weakened by the Supreme Court back in 2009. The new bill is called the Protecting Older Workers Against Age Discrimination Act, or POWADA. Joining me with the specifics, Tully Rinky, attorney Michael Fallings. Michael, good to have you back.
4: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: Now, this law applies to everyone in the public and private sectors, this proposed bill, correct? Correct. And in your experience, I mean, what types of discrimination occur against older workers in federal agencies? Because some of them, you know, hang around for a long time and like their careers. Well,
4: towards the end of a federal employee's career, or even in the private sector, you'll see the employers start to push them out, so to speak, where they'll want these employees to leave the workforce. I've seen discrimination in that aspect would in the form of lower performance evaluations, stricter work assignments, and an effort to kind of push them out to increase levels of discipline um, and to set up that discipline for
0: those older workers and this happens in federal agencies. Correct. And let's review then what the law was and what happened in 2009 that changed it.
4: Sure. So there's the Age Discrimination and Employment Act, which applies to federal workers as well. And the standard has been a but-for-causation standard, meaning that employees to prove age discrimination in employment must prove that age was the butt cars or was the reason for their termination, which overturned what was the mixed motive standard of proof, where an employee just has to prove that age was a reason. So, for example, if an employee could show, well, they use my age, yeah, my performance may have been not sufficient, but my age was a reason as well, that could still be an age discrimination violation. However, under the new standards that are put in place, that was not valid. You had to prove age was the reason, was the reason, the but for reason for a violation.
0: In other words, but for the age of the person, nothing bad would have happened. Correct. And this is what the Supreme Court ruled in a case some years ago. Yes. And did that seem to increase the amount of at least perceived discrimination? Because the standard did change, as you said.
4: Well, I believe it increased actions taken by employers to let go of older employees um, and using reasons that weren't really the true reasons, you know, masking it in bad performance or masking it in, in layoffs or budgetary reasons, when really the reason was because of their age. I think I saw an increase in that, you know, in my practice and because they knew it was harder for an employee to prove that age discrimination.
0: Right. And so if there's a bad performance review in a series of them, it's pretty hard to say the but for because the employer has something. Well, no, it's not the age. Here's the last five performance reviews.
4: But for is a higher standard. Having to prove that but for versus a mixed motive does make it tougher for an employee, especially when the employer is building that case against the employee. Or their so-called legitimate reasons to discipline an employee.
0: We're speaking with Michael Fallings. He's an attorney with Tully Rinke, which represents federal employees. And so tell us about this new bill. Who's behind it and what would it do?
4: Well, it would go back to the mixed motive um, standard. The new administration has, I think for the reason we've been discussing, has seen this uptick in employees being removed and And employers masking the real reasons for the removal, you know, masking the age discrimination behind it with so-called legitimate reasons so that they want to shift back to the mixed motive standard, which would align with other discrimination statutes and their standards and what employees can prove.
0: What other discrimination types of classes would this then resemble if this becomes law?
4: Well, under Title VII, there's a mixed motive provisions where employees can prove discrimination based on retaliation or race um, using that mixed mode of standard I um, mean so the age discrimination act uh, with this new proposal would you know shift it back to what the title VII standards are, are resembling
0: what happens if someone is older or they are in one of those protected classes and their performance really is bad how does that resolve in general in your experience
4: well i mean if their performance really is bad i mean that's going to be a reason for an employer to discipline an employee But I think an employee also needs to be aware of whether or not their performance just becoming bad towards the end of their career. What I often see is an employee has been with this employer for 10, 20 years, you know, doing the same work. And then all of a sudden their performance has just become bad. And maybe it's because a new supervisor come in. Maybe there's a new policy in place or something like that, but they know their job. So if that's the case, and let's say the supervisor has some legitimate basis behind it, the employee could still consider using reasons of age discrimination and, and filing allegation to prove that this discipline is wrongful.
0: All right. And again, who is behind the bill and is there bipartisan support as far as you can tell?
4: Yes. From what I see, there is bipartisan support.
0: And should this become law, what do you advise employees to do if they feel like they can sense this kind of discrimination coming on?
4: Well, consider filing claims through the available avenues that federal employees or even private sector employees have. Contact local counsel if you need assistance in, in filing these claims. And yeah, if these actions are being taken, think about whether or not it is because of their age or because, you know, they've been with this company or with the government for a lengthy amount of time.
0: Michael Fallings is an attorney with Tully Rinke. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the world is a piñata and Congress keeps swinging and missing. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. Can it get any more chaotic in Congress? This week will tell. Another try at impeaching Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Foreign aid, federal telework. It's a broken record and you're the needle. We get more now from WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. I'm not sure where we should start here, but let's start with the mundane, and that is federal telework, still an object of interest. To at least Republicans, fair to say.
5: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, The House Oversight Committee really pressing the Office of Management and Budget now to provide more data, not just on telework, but uh, what many have called work environment plans from the various agencies. In other words, what are agencies doing to actually look at how many people are returning to the office? And the Oversight Committee Chair Comer, as as well as some other Republicans on the committee, recently sent a letter to the OMB Director Shalanda Young and said, basically, you have not provided the kind of data we need to show that people are either uh, effectively working telework Or they are coming back to the office. And um, so they are now calling on uh, not only uh, OMB, but the OMB to basically get the agencies to give their timelines for getting people back. And as we've been talking over the last several months, this has been a real push by uh, particularly Republicans in Congress, but Democrats are concerned about it too, trying to find out more information just about how everything has changed since the pandemic. So the latest is that uh, Comer and his Committee have given OMB a deadline of this week, this Wednesday, to respond with this additional information. We'll have to see uh, whether or not that information gets to them and they get satisfied sometime soon.
0: Yeah, the question is, what would they do when they know all of this?
5: Right, exactly. I mean, they may take this information and then process it and say, okay, well, we're looking at this and we don't think you've done enough. And then we'll see what the give and take is between OMB as well as some of these other agencies who have said that they have been doing a lot of things to try to get people back to work. But as you know, it's been a very gradual process.
0: And switching gears here, ever since the first DC-3 had a Marriott-prepared box lunch on board, <laughs> leaving National Field or whatever they called it then, Congress has been arguing over what can and cannot. Fly into where from what is now Reagan National Airport, and this is still on the agenda.
5: Right. This is still a big issue about how many flights can go in and out of Reagan National. You look at that quaint, original building for the airport and think of this airfield. But it is the most busy runway of any airport in the country, and that's simply because of the size. There's just not a lot of capacity there. So the latest renewed battle over this, I call it the flight fight, uh, is over whether or not they should add five flights in and out of Reagan National. This has gone through the Senate Commerce Committee... And it raised the hackles of the Virginia and Maryland congressional delegations. Uh, I was on uh, the phone recently with Senator Mark Warner, who's really upset about it. He just says that he does not believe there's enough capacity to add these flights. Now, on the other side, uh, lawmakers from other parts of the country, as we both well know, uh, they want more direct flights. But they also argue that it would be better for their constituents that people could get more direct flights and that if you provided more flights, it might potentially provide cheaper flights. I think there's going to be a real big battle here. This is all, of course, tied into the FAA authorization bill. And the reason I call it Fight Flight 2 is because you'll remember last year there was another fight, and that was when the House was taking up the FAA authorization bill. At one point, they were talking about adding as many as 28 flights in and out of Reagan National. That was eventually whittled down to seven, and then the local delegation here in the Washington area forced that amendment to go down. So, I think that we're going to see another effort to try to do that, but there is some bipartisan support for expanding these flights. We'll have to see what happens.
0: And the FAA authorization itself is still in limbo, and it's kind of an important agency these days. Right.
5: I mean, this is really interesting. The FAA authorization bill, here we are now in February, closing in on mid-February, and it is still not done. And as I just mentioned, the House passed it a long time ago. But they are still grinding away with a lot of different things that, uh, by the way, way, uh, Senator Warner and some of the other members of the delegation uh, uh, believe are good things that are included in the FAA authorization bill that they believe would uh, ultimately protect safety of air passengers. Obviously, that's been a big attention getter since we had the door literally blow out of a Boeing plane recently. Uh, so they'll have to be trying to get that through as well as, as they move forward to March. Don't forget, we've got that uh, government shutdown deadline coming just over three weeks away.
0: We're speaking with Mitchell Miller, Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. And yes, on the airplane issue, I guess you could say maybe if I'm on a MAX 8 or whatever they call that plane, can I have an extra seatbelt just in case the doors don't come (laughs) up? Double up, up for sure. But on the federal budget, yeah, I mean, is anything happening now or is that just – because they don't agree on what they want to do, whether a long-term CR or – or getting through the budget bills.
5: Right, what's really troubling about this is when you look back at all that chaos that you alluded to earlier in connection with last week with so many things uh, falling apart and a lot of acrimony here on the Hill, even more so than there usually is, In the middle of all that, there really was no work done on any of the appropriations bills other than some minute things uh, behind the scenes. So they are really behind the eight ball yet again. I know it does sound like a broken record on that needle, but uh, we are coming up here with weeks away, and they really haven't made any kind of progress with this March 1st deadline. And then you have another one coming up on March 8th, and uh, the House Speaker, Mike Johnson, clearly has had some problems and made some missteps recently. And frankly, there's some concern uh, within his conference, as well as definitely among Democrats, about whether or not he's going to be able to pull all of this together, uh, because they can't just keep kicking the can down the road over and over again. So there's an argument about whether or not can they do a long-term CR that would go through the rest of the year. And as we've talked about before, a lot of people are opposed to that, because they say it's basically effectively a cut for many uh, agencies, as well as the Pentagon, which is the big one. So I'm really, interested to see if they're going to be, is there going to be any progress as we move through this week, or are we just going to have these dates just sitting there waiting for them to really explode in the next you know three
0: weeks or so? It's almost like there's three parties on Capitol Hill. The Republicans have bifurcated into a big piece and a small piece, but the small piece has enough marbles to take the game away.
5: Right, exactly. It's really fascinating uh, in terms of what has happened with the Republican Party. Uh, there was a time with the U.S. Senate, as you know, where it was kind of the big boy party, uh, the The big boy uh, part of legislation and that the House would always wrangle with things. But the Senate has really become more like the House lately. Clearly, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has lost his control of the Congress, at least to the extent that he used to have. He used to be able to tell members, this is what we're going to do. And most of them would fall in line with some uh, complaints here and there. But now, you basically, as you alluded to, have two parties within the GOP. And the older part, the one that went for the foreign policy aid and uh, get money for Ukraine, that one is really starting to fall apart. And the other side that is uh, promoted by former President Trump is really pushing hard now and, and really gaining an upper hand.
0: And then there is the border and Customs and Border Protection and Homeland Security and the situation with its leadership. They did not vote to impeach him last week, Mr. Mayorkas. That's going to come up again. We've heard vows of. So that puts the department kind of a little bit in edge you might say
5: right the uh, department is sort of in a little bit of a suspended animation here Uh, everybody just assumed that the impeachment uh on the hill was going to go through last week obviously a miscount and a lot of acrimony in connection with the gop on that uh but now we have uh what will be another impeachment vote uh with uh the Homeland Security Secretary this week. Uh, one of the key things will be the House Majority Leader, Steve Scalise, coming back. He's been getting treatment for cancer. I mean, the vote tight is so tight that they literally have to make sure one vote is going to be there or not. That was the difference last week, of course, uh, when it was tied uh, after uh, Democrat Al Green was literally wheeled in on a wheelchair uh, to get in to get his vote, and that threw off the Republicans. So uh, I think for the department, it's got to be unsettling because uh, they've been seeing this back and forth. I do think this impeachment, though, is going to go through. But then what does that mean after that? It will go to the Senate, uh, where it will likely die effectively. Uh, They will will probably have to hold a trial. Or if they don't, they may try some procedural moves to get an off ramp from that.
0: What a world. I guess maybe the Republicans strategically erred when they should have said, well, we'll get rid of our guy that lied on his resume if you get rid of your guy (laughs) that pulled the fire alarm.
5: (laughs) Who, by the way, George Santos, uh, who was
0: kicked out of Congress, as you alluded to, uh, his special election is tomorrow. Wow. What a world. And real quickly, RFK Stadium, which affects commuters crossing Washington, that's back in the crosshairs.
5: Yeah, a lot of people, of course, drive by there and wonder what is going on with that big deteriorating, once proud RFK Stadium building. And there is some movement now for the first time in months. The House Natural Resources Committee advancing a bill to enter an agreement with the National Park Service for a 99-year lease on the RFK site. The original uh, proposal that comes out of uh Congressman Comer's Oversight Committee uh, initially had it being uh, the lease with the General Services Administration, but as you know, uh, the GSA has been trying to uh, pull back on some of its uh, management of things, of properties and uh, office buildings that are getting emptier. At any rate, they, they approved this amendment, and that basically opens the door to development ultimately of this RFK campus site. Supporters of a new stadium for the commanders hope that there will be a new stadium or at least that will be a A carrot to potentially get the new ownership of the team there. And then there's a lot of other proposals related to uh, that would affect, as you mentioned, commuters, as well as just the overall uh, park and green space around that area, and as well as uh, potential development, including retail in that area. So a lot of things starting to bubble up after years of kind of nothing really happening there uh, in Congress.
0: Well, the Park Service could say, listen, we'll give you a 25 year lease, but if you get a Super Bowl, then we'll extend it an option (laughs) for 75 more years. There you go. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. Thanks so much. You bet. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. And this program note, every day this week, our special report will highlight the 85 percent of federal employees who work outside the Washington, D.C. region, led by 28 federal executive boards nationwide. Be sure to check it out at federalnewsnetwork.com. 57 past the hour. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin.
5: Tom Temin, sponsored by
2: GEHA.
0: Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Monday, February 12th, 2024, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our web editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of the Federal Drive, Congress ponders new discrimination protections for older employees. Plus, the Defense Department is really, really serious about cybersecurity and zero trust, those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency is settling a religious discrimination lawsuit with one of its job applicants. The applicant, a Sabbath-observant Jewish man, says NGA only gave him Saturday options to complete pre-employment screening steps. NGA is settling the case after the Supreme Court issued its ruling last year in a similar case of religious accommodation in the federal workplace. For more on this case, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. And Jory, if you would, just review the facts here.
6: Yeah, sure. Real briefly here, NGA last month, they reached a settlement in the case of Jeffrey Padel, this sabbath observant jewish man who applied for several nga police officer jobs back in april of 2021 so a couple of years for him to get this kind of relief but what he was looking for he has a background in law enforcement he's had jobs in this field before he applied to all of these jobs he got a response back from the agency several months later and they were willing to take him on and they go through this pre-employment screening process it would involve a written test, it would involve a physical test. This is law enforcement after all, and it would be an interview before a panel of people who would go through all the candidates, ask them questions, and kick the tire, so to speak, to understand whether they'd be a good fit for the agency. And the first option that he got as far as a date to schedule this was a Saturday in the summer, and he told the agency his situation, he says, no, I'm sorry, Saturday's the Sabbath for me, I can't do this, can you give me a non-Saturday option? And the agency went back and they said well we'll get back to hr we'll see what we can do according to the lawsuit that never happened he never heard back from what hr said about this and he was told time and again that Saturdays were the only options he could do this testing.
0: Got it. I guess I'm surprised NGA has its own police force in the first place. But that aside, what happened? What did Padel do then after this never came through?
6: Well, initially, he went through the EEO process, the Equal Employment Opportunity Office at NGA, and he explained what happened. And they were starting to interview, according to the lawsuit, some of the people who were sending these emails to Padell in the first place. And one thing that came to light is that one NGA official who was managing this email address, he was familiar with the religious accommodation process for NGA employees, but he wasn't sure whether the same level of protection applied for job applicants, people who were not yet employees at the agency, and other officials interviewed by the EEO office. They conceded that if they had hired Padell for this law enforcement job, that there wasn't going to be any real necessary need for him to work Saturdays, that he could easily work a Monday through Friday shift and other people do. So that was not going to be an issue for him.
0: Just to be clear, when he asked for a non-Saturday screening interview, they didn't say we can't give you anything but Saturday. They just never answered him at all.
6: Eventually, they did say that for these types of positions, for these NGA police positions, the only days available for them to do that pre-employment screening were Saturdays, and okay. they never offered them a non-Saturday option.
0: Got it. All right. So what happened when the court
6: got the case? What did the court do there? Well, this bounced around at a couple of courts. This uh, initially appeared in a district court in Pennsylvania where Mr. Padell lives, and then it wound its way to the Eastern District of Virginia, where uh, one of the judges hearing this case uh, was pretty struck by the whole situation uh, and and seemed it was a pretty – open and shut case for Padel, the judge here in this case, he was saying that it was not clear to him why NGA and its parent agency, the Defense Department, uh, couldn't have simply just done this on a Thursday or a Wednesday. And he said, ultimately, how many Orthodox Jews are applying for these kinds of positions and that this is not imposing on NGA to make this kind of religious accommodation request? It seems like a pretty easy thing from the judge's perspective that NGA could have done. So from the judge's perspective, they made it pretty clear that he was sympathetic to to Patel's arguments in this case. And so eventually NGA did reach this settlement with him.
0: Yeah, they smelled the coffee, so to speak, coming off of the judge's bench there. And what
6: did the NGA actually agree to as part of the settlement? Well, as part of the settlement, they did give Patel an opportunity to take this test on a day that is not Saturday. We heard from uh, his attorney, Cliff Readers, that he took it earlier this month. He took it on February the 6th. Again, this is multiple years after he initially applied for this job. Um, But NGA more broadly made this decision to clarify, well, it agreed to as part of its settlement, it agreed to clarify that these religious accommodation, things that it's able to provide, it applies equally to NGA employees as well as applicants. And so they've made that clear on their website and they've uh, issued memos stating as much to all aspects of the agency. Yeah, and so for further information on this, I and for a little bit more on this, I did hear from Padel's attorney, Cliff Readers, and he says that his client did get some cash settlement as part of this as well, uh, but he said it was really important that the other information and the other language about accommodations in the workplace be part of the settlement
7: in the security business in military business generally in the United States have not been very conducive to Jewish people specifically Jewish people who are observant it's been difficult for Jews in the military it's been difficult for Jews um, applying for military paramilitary and security kinds of agencies they do not traditionally they're not traditionally welcoming To observant members of the observant Jewish community. So hopefully this will change that environment substantially.
0: And again, that's Cliff Readers, the attorney for the applicant here at NGA. And Jory, the uh, Supreme Court did
6: have a similar
0: case, as we said, at the top last summer. Did that impact this particular case?
6: Interesting overlap in this case. In the case of Groff v. DeJoy, this was the case of an evangelical mail carrier gerald groff did not want to work sundays because that was the sabbath that he observed and as usps started to deliver more and more amazon packages on sunday that began to become a conflict the supreme court of course doesn't deal in the particulars of cases they deal in matters of law and the constitution and so in hit in his case, the Supreme Court set a higher bar for religious accommodation for all employers, government and non-government. And actually, a appeals court is still weighing in on the particulars of Groff and whether the Postal Service in this case uh, you know, had an undue burden trying to meet this shift request from Groff. But the overlap here is that Hodel and his attorney, they filed an amicus brief on behalf of Groff saying that this was a similar type of situation that they were both dealing with. And I did ask readers whether this ruling the Supreme Court gave Padel extra ammunition in terms of this case, but he says really not, that ultimately, in the case of Padel, this was a more open and shut case for him.
7: He was going to work for the United States of America, where there are thousands and thousands of thousands upon thousands of people who could have provided him a reasonable accommodation. There was no attempt made to find Mr. Podell a reasonable accommodation, in spite of the fact that the employer would be the United States of America, the Department of Defense, which would be in a very good position to afford a reasonable accommodation.
0: Well, then, this is all settled. But is it? That is to say, is Jeff Podell working for NGA in law enforcement
6: now? Well, that's not yet clear. We, he did take the initial pre-employment testing Um, It remains to be seen whether he'll actually get the job or not. One thing that I should mention as part of the settlement is that Padel does get access to that interview panel's notes. The Defense Department and NGA have guaranteed that the members of that interview panel have no knowledge of this case or the settlement. So remains to be seen whether he'll get the job, but uh, that's or uh, that's something we'll see in the future.
0: All right. And I know you'll be on top of it. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, the Defense Department gets really, really serious about cybersecurity and zero trust. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.